didn't want to put that on the recording in the meantime. So now everybody who hears the recording is going to wonder what I didn't put on the recording. So, uh, we talked about we talked about your Miyahu last time, Jeremiah. First of all, two cool coincidences. Like for now that I know how to pronounce Jeremiah. So somebody forwarded me an article, I think from the Wall Street Journal just this past week that had the word, you know, politicians bashing each other. You can actually, when one politician bashes another one, you're allowed to call that also a Jeremiad. So it actually came up in the news. that all, And then just by sheer coincidence, uh, an article that I had written, who knows when, in the publishing world, you have to kind of be patient and just bide your time and, and you just eventually things will happen. So an article just got accepted for publication on the chapter that we did last week, and it just showed up. I got the galleys this past week, so great timing, given that I wrote it like a year ago. So it's, it's, uh, I appreciate these little things, wanted to share it. It'll be published in two, January 2017, so mark your calendars. Uh, the topic we discussed last time, if, if we can imagine, you know, Jeremiah comes into the temple precincts and tells them, you know, if we don't shape up our act right now, the temple is going to be destroyed. And we went over last week a whole spectrum of possibilities of what might be motivating his opposition, because boy, oh boy, did he get opposition, ranging from people are just evil, to people are misguided but actually God-fearing, to people are God-fearing and actually have good reasons to doubt him. And the question that comes up is, how could he prove that he was a real prophet? And that was a problem that he faced throughout his life. Jeremiah, like no other prophet in, in the entire Tanakh, had a lifelong battle with different kinds of false prophets. If you look at source number one, dating probably to the very beginning of his career, he laments the fact that the priests never asked themselves, where is the Lord? The guardians of the teaching, meaning the Torah, ignored me. The rulers rebelled against me. And the prophets prophesied by Baal, and followed what can do no good. So what kind of prophets are these? False prophets, prophets and and what are they prophesying? What's their message? God's at your side. Huh? They're they're not saying that. What are are these false prophets doing? You're right about the the next batch. Yeah, they're idolatrous, right? Baal is a, is, a, is a pagan deity. He's a Canaanite storm god. So when Jeremiah condemns this batch of false prophets, this sounds to be like the relics of the Menashe era that we talked about last time, where the whole country had turned to idolatry, or at least was nationally supported. So we get the sense that there are still prophets of idolatry in our midst. So that's the beginning of his career. Minutes before the destruction of the temple, meaning some 40 years after the prophecy that we just read... We're not sure, but probably the very beginning of his career. We're very near it, at, the, at least. One prophecy that Jeremiah said immediately prior to the destruction of the temple in Source 2 in chapter 37, Jeremiah said to King Zedekiah or Zedekiah, What wrong have I done to you, to your courtiers, and to this people that you have put me in jail? And where are those prophets of yours who prophesied to you that the king of Babylon would never move against you and against this land? Yeah, where are those prophets now? What's, the, what's that group of prophets' message? They're not idolatrous, or at least not that we're aware. What's their message? What's the type of message that the false prophets in, in Source 2 are saying? Sit tight. <laughs> Definitely sit tight. But, but, but what specifically, what kind of prophecy are they giving? Is this religious? Is this... Political. It's political, right? In other words, they had a political message. Jeremiah's primary rivals in the Department of Prophecy were the political opponents. 
not the Baal prophets. The Baal prophets in the beginning of his career, if you were a God-fearing person in those days and you heard a prophet of Baal, you'd say, go away. (laughs) You're preaching idolatry. That's the wrong religion. Get out of here. Jeremiah didn't have a threat from prophets of Baal. But Jeremiah did have a threat from people who came, sounded God-fearing, they looked religious, they sounded religious, they talked the talk, they walked the walk, they spoke in the name of God, and they were giving different political advice from Yirmiyahu. Jeremiah's whole political agenda, just to summarize his career, we did this last time, but snapshot. In 609 BCE, that's when he came to the temple and made the resounding prophecy that we talked about last time. From 609 to 605, that was his window of calling for repentance before it's too late. And he did that a lot. In 605, that was the moment of, uh uh-oh, Nebuchadnezzar is now the king, the Babylonians are now in charge. And Jeremiah's sole message, at least in the dated prophecies, shifts away from repentance... He still wants the people to repent, don't get me wrong. It's just, that's not his agenda anymore. His agenda becomes submit to the yoke of the Babylonians, meaning become their vassal. Pay whatever taxes they want. It's better than getting killed. It's terrible. It's a terrible life. He hates the Babylonians as much as the next guy. But it doesn't matter. That's the only chance we have to survive. So that's the message of Jeremiah from 605 to 586. 586 is when the temple was destroyed. At that point, it really didn't matter anymore. Right? But from, that was a window where Jeremiah pleaded and preached, and he spoke to the kings. He spoke to the nobility. He spoke to anybody and just told them that was his message, submit to the yoke of Babylonia. But there were lots of false prophets who were coming along and saying, as we saw in source number two, that God will miraculously destroy the Babylonians. Now, here's what we need to understand. When a prophet gets up and says, God will miraculously destroy the Babylonians, right? It's a fabulous prediction, right? Were, were it that it was true, right? But what are they really saying? When they're saying God is really going to destroy the Babylonians, how exactly is God going to implement that destruction? What do we need to do as, as, as Judeans? We need to fight. It's a call to rebellion, Right? That's what the false prophets are saying. They're couching it in religious terms because that's what all prophets do, false ones and true ones, right? The message of God will miraculously destroy the Babylonians, that means that we have to join a coalition and fight them. That's the only way that they're going to be miraculously destroyed. So Jeremiah was up against all of them and the political establishment and the religious establishment. The religious establishment just didn't think that Jerusalem could fall as we discussed last time. It was impossible. It's theologically impossible. The political establishment doesn't want to be a vassal because honestly, who wants to be a vassal, right? It's terrible. It's very crippling on the economy. It's humiliating. Your kingship is useless. It's a terrible situation to be in. And the false prophets really just wanted to see the Babylonians go away, right? And they all kind of coalesce and they're all against poor Jeremiah. He has almost no supporters. And his whole message is we need to surrender, we have to get to the roots of, tonight's tonight shiur is on one topic only. Jeremiah has to figure out how to convince good-willed people why they should listen to him and not to the other guys. It's a hard thing to try to do. Again, we have it easy. We can read the book of Jeremiah and we're like, no, listen to him. He knows what he's talking about. If you listen to these other people, Jerusalem's going to fall. Like We could read it as the Monday morning quarterbacks. We know that Jeremiah is the true prophet. We know that he was right all along. But 
the fascinating exercise of learning Jeremiah, the book, is if we were there, how would we know who to listen to? Even if we were the best God-fearing, sincere religious people who just want to do the word of God. But we don't know which of these prophets are prophets. So here's what the Torah says about false prophecy. We have, we have two passages. Source three over here. If there appears among you a prophet or a dream diviner, here's an important footnote. The term false prophet appears zero times in the entire Bible. It's, true prophets and false prophets are all called prophets. From the context, we usually can tell which one is true and which one is false. For example, in this case, we're dealing with a false prophet. But the Torah doesn't have a name for that. It just calls it a prophet who's doing the wrong thing. So we know that that person is false. Okay, so here we go. If there appears among you a prophet or a dream diviner, and it gives you a sign or portent saying, let us follow and worship another God. So he gives some kind of sign. He makes a prediction. Whatever he does, he does some kind of wonder. And he says, let us go worship another God whom you have not experienced. Even if the sign or portent that named you to you comes true, do not heed the words of that prophet or that dream diviner. For the Lord your God is testing you to see whether you really love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. As for that prophet or dream diviner, he shall be put to death. The punishment for a false prophet is execution by court. It's not that God will smite him. It's, it's what we, it, it goes to the Sanhedrin. It would actually go to a court. And if witnesses saw somebody prophesy, prophesying for other deities, okay, so that person is now an idolater, and that person would be executed in a trial. He shall be put to death for he urged disloyalty to the Lord your God who freed you from the land of Egypt and who redeemed you from the house of bondage to make you stray from the path that the Lord your God commanded you to follow. Thus you will sweep out evil from your midst. Great. So who's, who's the false prophet of this passage? But in this... Correct. But in, in this, in, just in this, you're, you're right. That those are the false prophets of our book. In this passage, though, in source number three, in Deuteronomy 13, who, huh? uh, the Baal people, other idols, right? In other words, this is just purely about idolatry. Now, the sages, Chazal, extend this in, in law, that if any person who claims prophecy says that God told him that any law of the Torah is permanently done, for example, God told me that we no longer have to keep kosher. We no longer have to keep Shabbat. Then we also know that the person is a false prophet. Because God would never tell a prophet that. The definition of prophecy is to uphold God and the Torah. Right? That's what all later prophets come to do, with no exceptions. So if anybody claims prophecy and is undermining God or the Torah, then that person cannot be a prophet. And we can execute them immediately. Right? That's the assumption of, of source three. Okay, so that's what the Torah says about somebody who preaches a message that's antithetical to Torah, most dramatically, of course, idolatry. Okay, but then there's another category of false prophet, and that's in source four. This is the more complicated one. This is going to get back to Elias' point. With Moshe about to die, the Torah anticipates that there will be future prophets, that there's not just Moshe, and now it's over. There will be later prophets. I will raise up a prophet for them from among their own people, like yourself, referring to Moshe. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak to them all that I command him. 
And if anybody fails to hear the word of, he speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. Meaning if, if a prophet tells you to do something and you don't do it, God will personally get you. Right? That doesn't go to the courts. But God will punish somebody who doesn't listen to a prophet. But any prophet who presumes to speak in my name an oracle that I did not command him to utter, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. So if a prophet, well, if somebody claims prophecy, but says something that God did not tell him, or preaches idolatry, well, that's, that person gets executed. So the second clause, right, the second part of preaching idolatry is the same thing as chapter 13 that we saw before. But what does it mean, any prophet who presumes to speak in my name an oracle that I did not command him to utter? That could include anything. Right? That goes way beyond idolatry. That means anybody who claims prophecy and says, thus said God to me in a prophetic vision, and he didn't get it or she didn't get it, well, that person would be executed. Well, how do we know? So the Torah picks up the how do we know clause, right? And should you ask yourselves, how can we know that the oracle was not spoken by the Lord? How in the world are we supposed to know? So the Torah answers, if the prophet speaks in the name of the Lord and the oracle does not come true, that oracle was not spoken by the Lord. The prophet has uttered it presumptuously. Do not stand in dread of him, meaning don't fear him, kill him. Execute him in courts. That's what that means. So what's the criterion here for how do you test true prophecy versus false prophecy? What's the test in this passage? Prediction. Right? This is a prediction test. This isn't about is he preaching idolatry or not. It's a prediction. If he predicts anything at all and it does not come true, then you know that that person is a false prophet. Problem. Um, That's just not true. The book of Jonah is predicated on, Jonah said the city is going to be destroyed in 40 days. And they repented, and then God didn't destroy the city. Does that make him a false prophet? No. It makes him an effective prophet, much to his chagrin. He didn't like that very much. But okay, that's an interesting story, but we'll talk about it a different time. But he's not a false prophet for that. Right? If people say, thus says the Lord, bad things are going to happen, and people repent, okay, that's great. That's what you're hoping to achieve. And the other way also, if they say good things are going to happen, and then people turn bad, well, maybe that can undermine the goodness of the prophecy. The prediction test is very vulnerable to changes in behavior. And the prophet who makes that most explicit is Jeremiah in source number five. Jeremiah, we'll talk about this a little bit when we get to Ezekiel, which is next on the agenda, although that will be in May, in May after Pesach. Jeremiah is a master of getting visions involving stuff you could buy in a grocery store. He has visions of... Huh? Sometimes it's hardware or something. It's household stuff. It's all very, you know, very, very low-key things that you and I are familiar with. He has a vision pertaining to an almond branch. He has another one with a bubbling, boiling pot. He has one with a pair of underwear. He has one with a shattered bottle. He has one with a potter's wheel. He has one with a basket of figs. It's all regular household things. Contrast that with Ezekiel, who's constantly seeing the angelic host, right? Two contemporaries dealing with the same realities, but they depict prophecy in a radically different way. It's really interesting, and we'll talk about this a little bit as we move into Ezekiel as well. So one of his prophecies involves a potter sitting at a wheel. You know, just imagine, I mean, I'm not much of an artist in any way, 
But I imagine I could still do the pinched bowl. In a, you know, if I if I really you know push comes to shove, it would be asymmetrical. It would be horrible. My daughters would make fun of me. Like, come on, daddy, how come we can't just make a regular round bowl? Right. And then I'd say, daddy's not much of an artist. And they're like, oh yeah, and that, that would that would solve that would solve everything. And, and they're okay with that. So the point of Jeremiah seeing a potter molding clay is that prophecies are like the clay, and God is the potter. And so what he says after the image is in source number five. At one moment, God is talking here. I may decree that a nation or kingdom shall be uprooted and pulled down and destroyed. (coughs) In other words, there could be a prophecy of doom. But if that nation against which I made the decree turns back from its wickedness, I change my mind concerning the punishment I plan to bring on it. Okay, if people repent, all bets are off. I'm not going to punish them. At another moment, I may decree that a nation or kingdom shall be built and planted. I might give a good prophecy to some nation. But if it does what is displeasing to me and does not obey me, then I change my mind concerning the good I plan to bestow upon it. So this passage is basically the opposite of source number four. Right? Source four is saying that the prediction test is the way that we could figure out who the true prophets are. Somebody makes a prediction and it does not come true. Okay, so we know that person is a false prophet. Whereas Jeremiah in source five here is saying, every prophecy is vulnerable to a change in behavior. Meaning you could never convict a prophet as a false prophet based on non-fulfillment of a prophecy because maybe somebody changed behavior. Right? That's why we would never convict Jonah. That's why the book of Jonah is in the Bible. Right? Okay, the people repented. The decree was thwarted. But that, that makes him a true prophet. Right? Or at the very least, we couldn't convict him as a false prophet. That's the problem that Jeremiah faces. Jeremiah can deal with evil prophets. He could deal with idolatrous prophets. He could deal with immoral prophets. Not everybody wants to hear Jeremiah against the evil ones. Not everybody wants to hear Jeremiah against the idolatrous ones. But at least God-fearing people will say, okay, Jeremiah believes in God, and this guy over here believes in Baal. I want to listen to the God one. Right? At least a God-fearing person can tell. But after 597 BCE, Jeremiah faced a crisis that he just couldn't, the regular rules of prophecy just didn't help him. 597 BCE, just to review from last time, was the exile of King Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin was the second to last Judean king. And that's where Nebuchadnezzar just waltzed right on into Jerusalem, captured king, captured 10,000 of Jerusalem's best and brightest, and took him off into captivity. And that was it. And put King Tzidkiah on the throne. Tzidkiah became the last of the Judean kings. So that was very traumatic. That event was very traumatic. For the first time, people are beginning to think, you know, maybe Jeremiah has been right all along. Maybe this is the beginning of the end. And suddenly this whole fresh group of false prophets show up and they say, no, God's told us, God told us that Babylonia is going to fall. And that our brothers and sisters are going to come home. There's going to be a redemption. There are going to be miracles. The downfall that we just saw is a prelude to redemption. Whereas Jeremiah is saying that that downfall is a prelude to the bigger downfall, which is the destruction of Jerusalem. That's their argument. And here, everybody sounds God-fearing. That's the crazy part. After that happened, the Egyptians, we talked about all the politics last time, so I'll just review the key points. The Egyptians were busy egging everybody on to become anti-Babylonia. That was their job. And in the year 593 BCE, it's in chapter 27 in Jeremiah, King Tzidkiah, or Zedekiah, 
hosted an international summit in Jerusalem with delegates from all these different nations, all the nations of the region, discussing whether or not they should revolt. You know, do we have enough firepower to actually thwart the Babylonians? Will the Egyptians really help us? It was hosted in Jerusalem. Zedekiah was the ringleader of the whole thing. He was really trying to decide, should we do it? And kings are there, nobles are there, the key government officials are all there on this very fateful day in Jerusalem in 593, trying to decide what they should do. And into the summit, way to put it, way to dampen the spirits there, Jeremiah barges right on in there wearing an ox yoke. And he says, thus says the Lord. I got another household object, by the way. Thus says the Lord. You must all submit to the yoke of Babylonia, because God has given the world to Babylonia. Anybody who submits to the Babylonian yoke will survive. And anybody who revolts will be crushed like a bug. That's what you got to do. He was very clear, very straightforward. He says it very poetically. He says, this is God's will. He says, in 70 years, the Babylonians will fall. But that's 70 years from now. That's a long time. For now, if you want to survive, look at this yoke. And then something really remarkable happens in chapter 28, right after he does this yoke thing. Source number six. That year, early in the reign of King Zedekiah of Judah, in the fifth month of the fourth year, this is still 593, the prophet Hananiah, son of Azur, who was from Giv'on, spoke to me in the house of the Lord in the presence of the priests and all the people. He said, Thus said the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I hereby break the yoke of the king of Babylon. So Hananiah's message, of course, is diametrically opposed to Jeremiah's. Hananiah is saying that God is going to break the yoke of Babylonia now. In two years, I will restore to this place all the vessels of the house of the Lord, which King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took from this place and brought to Babylon. And I will bring back to this place King Yehoniah, son of Yehoiakim of Judah, and all the Judean exiles who went to Babylon, declares the Lord. Yes, I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. In other words, God told him, or so he says, right? God told him, and again, remember, he's called the prophet because the Bible has no term for false prophet. Yeah. So So is the motivation for these false prophets, it it seems it has to be utterly simple that the others are evil. Why are they they saying rebel, rebel, rebel? It's got to be a reason. So the reason for a true prophet is, however reluctantly he is a prophet of God, is God is essentially propelling him. Um, but, but what's the motivation then for the other ones? I can come up with a host of motivations. Rather than answering your question yet, okay. I, think, I think it's worth, your question is the right question, which is what's driving Hananiah and all of his buddies? Right, what is driving them? If they're, get, if they're on the king's payroll, you know, if the nobles are paying them off, it's like, hey, we need some false prophets who are going to support our message. And the nobles all wanted to revolt. Mm-hmm. That was the nobility's plan. So it could well be that they were paying off these false prophets and saying, look, you guys say, speak in the name of God. And who's going to argue? that we have to, we have to quell Jeremiah. And they tried very hard to quell him. They threw him into a pit. They put him in stockades. They tried to kill him. They tried to poison him on various occasions. Threw him in prison. They definitely tried to stop his message from getting on out there. Jeremiah never, never backed away, but he tried to do it. But I'm interested in your question. I think that your question is the right one, which is, what is motivating Hananiah? So here's Jeremiah walking around with this yoke, trying to preach 
you know, submit to the yoke of Babylonia. And then you have Hananiah who takes him on right at the temple in Jerusalem. Verse 5. Next, it's, you know, flip over the page. Then the prophet Jeremiah answered the prophet Hananiah in the presence of the priests and all the people who were standing in the house of the Lord. As you can imagine, this is the kind of thing that's going to draw a crowd, right? Like up until now, if it's just Jeremiah walking around with the yoke, okay, whatever. It's another person at the Kotel, right? It's not, it's not going to be something that's going to attract attention. Jeremiah is trying. But now that there's a showdown, okay, that's good stuff. We're all going over there. So people are going to quickly forget their Tehillim books or whatever else they were doing over there and kind of inch, inch over there. So everybody's there. The priests are there. The people are there. All the worshipers are there. We're about to see a great prophetic showdown. And the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen, may the Lord do so. May the Lord fulfill what you have prophesied and bring back from Babylon to this place the vessels of the house of the Lord and all the exiles. He's like, I wish you were right. That would be awesome. It's much better than the true message, which is my message. My message is they're not coming back in two years, right? I wish that your message were right because that's better for the Jews. But, but that's not the message that we're going to get. But just listen to this word, verse 7. Just listen to this word which I address to you and all the people. The prophets who lived before you and me from ancient times prophesied war, disaster, and pestilence against many lands and great kingdoms. So if a prophet prophesies good fortune, then only when the word of the prophet comes true can it be known that the Lord really sent him. He tries to create a precedent. Generally speaking, let's face it, folks, when you read most prophets, there's a lot of doom in there. So Jeremiah's like, look at me. I'm a prophet of doom. I'm just like my predecessors. Hananiah here is so cheerful. Prophets are never cheerful. Right? If he's so cheerful, the only way you can ever see that he's right is if his prediction really comes true. Whereas for me, I'm a prophet of doom. This is what we all do. This is what prophets have been doing from time immemorial. So that's what he that's his argument. But you're saying Jeremiah didn't give him an alternative that the his argument had been pre-605 repent and post-605 we need to surrender and we need to become a vassal that's, that's, what he's, that's why he's wearing that yoke his message is that Babylonia will fall in 70 years 7-0 right? whereas Hananiah's message is that Babylonia will fall in 2 years and you understand that this, each one comes with a very different political advice. Hananiah's political advice is, how is Babylonia going to fall in two years? We need to revolt. We need to fight these guys, and then we'll beat them. And Jeremiah's point is, we must surrender because they're going to dominate for 70 years. So it's not just a prediction thing that's going on. It has nothing to do with their religious practices. Correct. Hananiah sounds very God-fearing. Sandra's question lies at the heart of the whole thing, which is, what's motivating a person like Hananiah? As we know, it's motivating Jeremiah. He got, he got a prophetic vision. He knows that it's the real deal. He's staking his life, and he's suffered a lot to this point, and he's going to suffer a lot more after the story because he doesn't have a choice. It's burning up inside of him. He has to preach the truth, even though it's very unpleasant and even though everybody hates him. Right? What's motivating Hananiah, though, since he didn't get a prophecy? Like that we could be sure of because... Otherwise, God is playing a lot of games <laughs> by, by inspiring two different prophets, opposite messages, and let the people figure it out. So Hananiah here in this dramatic showdown moment in verse 10. The prophet Hananiah removed the bar from the neck of the prophet Jeremiah and broke it. Wow, that's a good visual aid, right? 
Hananiah said in the presence of all the people, Thus said the Lord, So I will break the yoke of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon from off the necks of all the nations in two years. And the prophet Jeremiah went on his way. He had nothing more to say. In other words, the argument is over. Right? Hananiah ben Azur gets the last laugh in terms of smashing the yoke. And it was perfect, because first of all, he was able to break Jeremiah's message. And second of all, he, he was able to save money on a yoke, right? Like, otherwise, he would have had to buy his own yoke and break it. This way, he was able to break Jeremiah's yoke. So it all worked out very nicely for him. And Jeremiah is nothing further. At this point, the argument is done. What's the problem? If you're a God-fearing person listening to this debate, what do you do? You have to decide. You can't wait two years for the miraculous downfall of Babylonia. You have to decide today, are we going to revolt today? Or are we going to submit today? You can't wait for these predictions to be fulfilled. And Jeremiah is paralyzed because of that. There's nothing he could do. He can't say, oh, Hananiah worships idols. Because it doesn't sound like he worships idols. It sounds like he worships God. There is nothing in his prophetic message that's antithetical to the Torah. It's political advice, right? God's political advice might well be, let's revolt and we'll have a miracle, right? There's nothing in his message that remotely sounds anti-God or anti-Torah. And the prediction part is a failure for Yirmiyahu, for Jeremiah, because, again, they can't wait. People can't wait two years to decide what to do. What's Jeremiah going to do? The test that the Torah gives for a false prophet is done. It's simply invalid in our story. That's really wrenching for Jeremiah. He's got to figure out what to do here. And he has to come up with a strategy which is going to revolutionize what prophecy is. Let's just finish this paragraph and then we'll move on to the next one. And the prophet Jeremiah said to the prophet Hananiah, Listen, Hananiah, the Lord did not send you, and you have given this people lying assurances. Assuredly, thus said the Lord, I am going to banish you from off the earth. This year you shall die, for you have urged disloyalty to the Lord. And the prophet Hananiah died that year in the seventh month. Okay, so he died. Okay. But that doesn't help anybody. People didn't say, oh, wow, he died. It must be that he's a false prophet. There were other people saying the same thing, and the fact that he died doesn't prove anything. Jeremiah is paralyzed, because the Torah talks about two kinds of false prophets. A prophet who talks about idolatry, which Hananiah is not, and the prediction test for which this is useless. Our story renders the entire prediction test useless. Jeremiah's really stuck. So he's got to do something here. And boy, oh boy, does he do something. the prediction test useless? He died. That part, yeah, sorry. Yermio prophesied that he would die. This year you shall die. We were urged as loyalty. And the prophet died that year. So it seems to be that the prediction test was accurate. That one was. You're absolutely right, Adele. What I'm saying is that the prediction, they were having conflicting predictions over when Babylonia is going to fall with a 68-year time discrepancy. That, for that, it's useless. In other words, if you see Hananiah's death as proof of Jeremiah's prophecy, then good for the go. But in terms of the competing visions of Babylonia will miraculously fall in two years and therefore revolt, versus Babylonia will fall in 70 years and therefore submit, Jeremiah has no way of, of doing anything today. That's, that's his problem. You're, you're right about Hananiah's death. That didn't solve the prediction test of, of what, what, what's going to happen with Babylonia. Because the people can't wait to, again, people can't wait two years to see Babylonia fall. The only way Babylonia will fall is if the people revolt now. 
So Jeremiah can't use the prediction test to prove his point. The only way that it would happen is if the people submit now. That, that's his problem. So Jeremiah actually rewrites how prophecy needs to be. And he comes up with two remarkable, what we call chidushim, novel extensions, shall we say, of the prophetic spectrum in order to bring the point home. You should know, by the way, that from the prediction test point of view, Jeremiah started predicting, predicting the downfall of Jerusalem in 627 BCE. All right. So now we're in 593 BCE. How many years is that? 34, am I right? So why isn't he a false prophet? That's a long time for your prophecy not to come true. Right? And in fact, some people uh, sarcastically pointed that out to him. Source number eight over here. See, they say to me, Jeremiah turns to God and complains about it. Where is the prediction of the Lord? Let it come to pass. It's like, hey, decades are going by. I don't see any destruction. What's going on here? You know, big talker. You think Jerusalem's going to fall? We seem to be doing okay. Jeremiah's prophecies didn't come true right away. It came true over 40 years after he first predicted it. And once it came true, boy, oh boy, did it come true. And then all of a sudden, everybody woke up. But the prediction test is a very dangerous bird both because people can change their behavior and because in this particular situation, people can't wait to see who's, which prophet is correct. And Jeremiah knows all of these things. In source number nine, in chapter 23, Jeremiah laments false prophets. And in this passage, he comes up with two truly wonderful novel ways of understanding prophecy, which really help refine what prophets are all about. Concerning the prophets, he says, my heart is crushed within me. You hear poor Jeremiah just devastated over people like Hananiah. All my bones are trembling. I've become like a drunken man, like one overcome by wine. In other words, I'm so depressed because the false prophets are the biggest danger to Jeremiah. If people are evil, then people are going to be evil. Okay, he, he doesn't want them to be evil, but at least he can pick a fight with them and everybody understands where he stands. But these false prophets who are predicting things in the name of God, and they sound religious, and they look religious, and they seem to be so God-fearing, they break his heart more than anybody. He's like a drunken man. He's so depressed. And it's what the people want to hear. Huh? And the people want to hear. It's very much what the people want to hear, and I think that that's central to what's going on over here. In verse 13, he says, in the prophets of Samaria, Samaria is, is, the, is the nickname for the northern kingdom of Israel, just to review this historical point. The northern kingdom of Israel does not exist anymore. The northern kingdom of Israel was exiled back in Isaiah's time. Right? Those are the, what we call the ten lost tribes. They've been lost for a while. So Jeremiah is referring back to those days. In the prophets of Samaria, I saw a repulsive thing. They prophesied by Baal and led my people Israel astray. So he says, you know, the prophets of the northern kingdom, they were Baal-worshipping lowlives. They were the worst. They were idolatrous. And they led the northern kingdom astray, and look at all the things that happened to them. But what I see in the prophets of Jerusalem is something horrifying. Adultery and false dealing. They encourage evildoers so that no one turns back from his wickedness to me. They're, excuse me, wickedness. To me, they are all like Sodom and all its inhabitants like Gomorrah. If they have stood in my council, let them announce my words to my people and make them turn back from their evil ways and wicked acts. Jeremiah just did something truly wonderful, so I want to dwell on it for just a moment. What is he saying about the prophets of the south, the false prophets of the south? What's their flaw? 
The northern flaw was they worshipped idols. Okay, that's a flaw. What's the flaw of the southern prophets, the ones who he's dealing with? They're encouraging bad, bad deeds. They're encouraging bad deeds. And how are they encouraging bad deeds? That's the, that's the beauty of what he's saying here. They're not listening to him. What, when Hananiah ben Azur, let's just go back to Hananiah, and he says, in two years, Babylonia will miraculously fall. Parentheses. Therefore, all we need to do is revolt. How is that encouraging evildoers? Can't tell you no. But how does it encourage evil doing to get up there and say in two years about God is going to miraculously destroy the Babylonians and our people are going to come back home? How does that encourage evil doing? Because nothing's being asked of you. That's what it is. They're not calling on anybody to change their behavior. Hananiah ben Azur and all of his friends, by saying that God will miraculously destroy the Babylonians in two years and all our exiles will come back for free through no repentance necessary. That is encouraging evil doing. And that, according to Jeremiah, is worse than the prophets of Baal of yesteryear. Prophets of Baal, at least a prophet of God can reckon with. Elijah the prophet, he had to deal with prophets of Baal. So he took him, he took him on at Mount Carmel they had the big showdown. And everybody understood by the end of that saga, okay, God is the true God and Baal is nothing. You could reckon with prophets of Baal. They're dangerous, but you could reckon with them. But Jeremiah is saying that these guys who are God-fearing and speaking in the name of God and preaching our religion, and they're giving a message that's anti-Jeremiah's message, that's more dangerous. Because now even good religious people won't know what to do. They're changing God's message. Yes, it's subverting God's message. Exactly right. So what Jeremiah is, has done, I want to make sure that this is clear. Source number three that we saw back when, right? The first source in the Torah. I just want to read it again. It says, if there appears among you a prophet or dream diviner and he gives you a sign or portent saying, let us follow and worship another God. Okay. The false prophet there is somebody who preaches an anti-Torah message, specifically to preach idolatry. Jeremiah, with one little subtle sleight of hand here, it's brilliant, truly brilliant. He's saying that anybody who gets up and prophesies without any intent of bringing people closer to God or the Torah is the same as one who is a prophet for idolatry. Right? In other words, not only can the people, not only can goodwill people tell, but even Hananiah and his buddies themselves should be able to realize that they cannot be true prophets because they're not trying to encourage improved behavior. Yeah, sorry, Sue. Uh, you could almost say that the default position of human behavior is uh, to give in to your Yetzirah. Uh, and it's a constant fight. And if you're told that you don't have to make that fight. Yeah, people like that. Or at least a lot of people like that. I don't. I, you know. I, I think. I, I think that people have. So Jeremiah is yeah. switching back to a religious prophecy rather than a political prophecy. That's right. 
what he's doing is he's redefining the problem. That's a, you nailed it. That's exactly what he's doing. He's redefining Hananya and all of his friends and saying, the prediction test won't help us at all. But their message is anti-Torah because they're saying that God will redeem us for free. We don't have to do anything to change our behavior. And the fact that these people don't have a burning desire to get the people of Israel to repent should make good-willed Jews and make the false prophets themselves realize that their prophecies are not true. That's exactly what he's done. Remember, there's no separation between religion and politics. But in this particular story is where for a moment it seems like there is one. So Jeremiah says there's none. This is an amazing extension of the Torah's law. Yeah. So, so this would actually, this would actually solve the Jonah sourcing because Jonah's Jonah's message was, you must repent and then you'll be saved. Of course, it bothered him that they would in fact be saved. But the changing your behavior test um, makes him not a false prophet. So if so, if it's the false prophet test. Right. Um, this this test, Jeremiah's repositioning, um, meets all the criteria. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. In other words, it's never about the prediction at the end, according to Jeremiah. It's about are you trying to bring people closer to God or not? If you are, then you could very well be a true. It doesn't prove that you're a true prophet, but at least that's what true prophecy is. Yeah, Albert. But uh, by contrast, if Jeremiah's message is to um, to be a vassal to the Babylonians, then What's, what's his religious message? Well, his message, what, what, what he does in, in his resume, you know, for, from 627 to 605, all I did was try to get people to repent. So you know that, that my track record is I want to get people to come closer to God. Now I have a problem because nobody's listened to me. People haven't repented. And now the Babylonians are at our doorstep. So rather than focus on repentance, now I'm going to focus on how we're going to just not be dead. But his whole claim is that you know that he's a true prophet because for 22 years, that I think he uses the number 23, even though, you know, whatever. It's, it's 20, 23 years. His whole point is that day and night, all he has tried to do is get people to repent. Whereas these false prophets who have arisen now, they're just saying there's a freebie. Thus says God that everything is going to be good. They've never called anybody to repent. So they should know themselves that they are false. In other words, your point is exactly right. Post 605, we don't hear of Jeremiah's calls for repentance. That was just a prudent prophetic measure. At that point, he was just trying to save lives. So he was hoping at least let the political establishment surrender so that they could do that. Yeah, Megan? It's very interesting to me that there there aren't, there there isn't much said about, and the people, at least some of them, said, you know, Hananiah is wrong. Uh, You know, we we are called upon to uh, follow the Torah and No, well, that's no, no, no. The opposite. You're actually nailing exactly what Jeremiah is trying to do. You've internalized his message, right? The whole point is that Jeremiah is saying what you just said. It's like, hey, Hananiah never called on anybody to be closer to God, and all of the friends also. It's not just Hananiah. There's a bunch of these people. And all of them are just constantly drumming along about God told them that Jerusalem is going to be saved and Babylonia is going to fall and our exiles are going to come back. So Jeremiah says, nobody's calling for any improvement. And so going back to Sue's point, Sue said it exactly right. 
that's obviously a more convenient message to hear. Wouldn't you like it for the Babylonians to fall and no, no action necessary on our part? Better deal. Jeremiah says these people can't be true prophets because the, the central pin of what it means to be a prophet is to bring people closer to God and Torah. Yeah, Sandra. So then um, under this definition that um, redemption is not a freebie, you have to work for it, you have to repent, um, would it be then that the only um, time B'nai Israel had this freebie was when they were redeemed from Egypt? I think that's it. So right. that's the only time in our history that we're going to get this freebie and after that's why and that generation died off and then after that we had to work for it. That's usually how the Bible is cast. There are exceptions to this principle. In fact, Jeremiah and Ezekiel run on totally different axes with regard to exactly your question. As far as Ezekiel is concerned, we're hopeless and God has to just swoop in and redeem us. Right? Whereas according to Jeremiah, we have a lot of work to do. So Jeremiah focuses on the human dimension. It goes back, by the way, it's, these are not unrelated variables, to Jeremiah having visions of almond branches and bottles and Ezekiel dealing with the heavenly sphere. Right? In other words, they're, they're related. There are related variables, but we'll get to that with, with Ezekiel. Okay, so Jeremiah has now done one amazing chidush. And that one amazing chidush so far is to teach that when the Torah says that anybody who prophesies in the name of idolatry is a false prophet, that includes anybody who doesn't prophesy in, in favor of God and Torah. Okay, that's revolution number one. It's really a revolution. But he has one more that he has to take care of now. And it goes back to Sandra's question from a while ago. What was motivating these false prophets? I'll tell you what was motivating them. They were deeply religious people. I hate to speak so nicely about these false prophets, but too bad. I think that they were all of them. These, these, these Hananya and his buddies were really religious people. Huh? I don't. I don't. Maybe you're right, and I can't. I can't tell you. Some of them, I'm sure, were corrupt. I'm sure that some of them wanted to get on the payroll and, and wanted power. I'm willing to believe that some of these people are very sincere. So let's picture this situation. 597 comes in. This awful trauma has occurred. King exiled, 10,000 people exiled. It looks like this could be the end, right? And there are so many religious people who are saying, God, how could you let this happen? I know, it can't be. This must be a setup for a miraculous redemption right now, right? You can imagine a very religious person thinking that, right? And what happens if you think this day in and day out because it's such a powerful emotional situation? You might even have some dreams about it. You might have very vivid dreams of the Babylonians going kablooey. Right? And the Jews triumphantly marching back from the Babylonian exile, led by their king. I imagine some of us would have had those dreams. Because you so desperately want it. And you so desperately believe in God. You believe that God is going to come through for us somehow. It's not rational. Right now the Jews are in a terrible place. Right? But, but God could do it. And I'll bet you some of these false prophets, I agree with Roberta, I think that some of them probably are just corrupt, evil, whatever. I'm not, I'm not putting that side away at all. But some of them could have genuinely been, you, know, this, you can imagine these religious circles of people just having these dreams, waking up in the morning, going to, going to their local you know, coffee bean or whatever. What did you dream about? Hey, I dreamed about it. Wow, we're all dreaming about this. Wish fulfillment or magical thinking. Dreams. But don't forget, in the Bible, many dreams are just what you're thinking 
you know, what we might call psychological motives or cashew nuts or whatever it takes to have dreams. But some dreams are prophetic. Sometimes even pharaohs or bakers and butlers get prophetic dreams, right? Dreams are part of the legitimate prophetic spectrum. Not every dream is prophetic, but some dreams are, right? And in fact, God himself talks about it in source number 10. When God is trying to teach Miriam and Aharon that Moshe really is above and beyond and different kind of prophet, he says, hear these my words. When a prophet of the Lord arises among you, I make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is trusted throughout my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, plainly and not in riddles. And he beholds the likeness of the Lord. How then did you not shrink from speaking against my servant Moses? What I care about for this passage today is dreams are a legitimate part of the prophetic spectrum. And here's God himself saying that. Okay, so the Joseph narratives are famous for that. But it's not only the Joseph narratives, right? Okay, so imagine these righteous people in 597 or 593 dreaming night after night after night as vivid as it goes that Babylonia is going to go kablooey and all of our exiles are going to come home. And they had dreams. Well, maybe it's prophetic. In fact, they're sure that it's prophetic because that's so much what they want to believe. It's a wish fulfillment. How is Jeremiah supposed to convince them that it's just your wish and not what God is telling you? Because after all, dreams are a legitimate form of prophecy. So go back to verse 25 now in source 9. It's about the middle of that passage. I have heard what the prophets say who prophesy falsely in my name. I had a dream. I had a dream. People have been having a dream for a long time. Here these false prophets had a dream. So Jeremiah scowls at them. How long will will there be in the minds of the prophets who prophesy falsehood? (coughs) The prophets of their own deceitful minds. The The plan to make my people forget my name by means of the dreams which they tell each other just as their fathers forgot my name because of Baal. Saying all you dreamers are just like the prophets of Baal. Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream. Look, you have a dream? Great. Write a blog. Right? That's what he's saying. It's it's okay. You can do it. Feel good about it. But, and let him who has received my word, meaning prophecy, report my word faithfully. Jeremiah's like, you guys are just having good old regular dreams. You're, you're, you're seeing your own wishes in your dreams. That's not prophecy. Prophecy is what I got. How can straw be compared to grain, says the Lord? It's actually a brilliant analogy, and I'm not much of a farmer, but you, know, you picture you, know, you have the weed stalk, and so there's the part, you know, the kernel, the stuff that you're actually going to eat one day, and you have the stalk. What Jeremiah is saying is that their experience is still part of the spectrum of wheat, but it's the part that you discard. It's not the part that you're going to make into bread one day. In other words, it's not, it, a dream is real. A dream has some merits, but it's simply not, that's not, the, that's, not the, that's not what we're going to be eating. I have the real prophecy, he says. Behold, my word is like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that shatters rock. Jeremiah here, I think, really gives us a, a window into the psychology of the most noble of the false prophets. Not the corrupt ones, not the evil ones, not the ones who are looking to gain, not the ones who are going to get all the approval of the political establishment or the masses. But there might have been some people who were genuinely sincere and that they really, 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 really thought and felt and believed that God was going to miraculously save the day. 
And they were dreaming about it night in and night out and they were sharing dreams with each other and they all felt this is the real thing and they were getting up and predicting it as prophecy. Saying these dreams are obviously part of the prophetic spectrum and Jeremiah's whole argument is you have dreams, I have prophecy. He's, how can tell the difference? That's hmm? the thing. How to tell the difference? Right, so Jeremiah's argument goes back to the first point. Since your dreams don't call for any change in behavior on the part of the, of the Jews, that means that you just had a dream. You're wishing for a miraculous thing, and you know what? I wish for the same thing. <laughs> it doesn't everybody, right? But as long as you're not calling for people to repent, you should wake up in the morning and realize, oh, that's not what prophecy is. Prophecy is to make people better. Prophecy is to make people closer to God. The fact that you're not doing that is a problem. And this actually really cuts down to what Jeremiah has done, just you know, to summarize these two points. One of the problems of reading Tanakh in general is that prophets are two things. One is that they're God's mouthpiece upholding the Torah. The other part is very often some of them, or many of them, are wonder workers. There's the holy man component to it, right? Okay, you have Elijah the prophet who's way up there in the wonder worker department. But other ones too, they're wonder workers. What Jeremiah is saying is that if you, don't, if you don't have A, then B is worthless, which the Torah says also. But people very often get caught up in the wonder-working component of it as the primary dimension of what prophecy can be. What, how good are your predictions? What kind of miracles can you do? Whereas the whole point is, and Jeremiah is making this very loud and clear, he just boils down what the Torah itself says. He, he, he didn't really revolutionize anything. It's all about upholding the Torah. Somebody who does that is a true prophet. Somebody who doesn't do that has to be a false prophet. And Rambam makes that point very loud and clear. Rambam says in his Laws of Prophecy, because you know, Rambam is going to turn that into law, right? In what's called the foundations of the Torah. He has Laws of Prophecy. And Rambam's whole point is that the prediction or the wonder-working part, don't worry about that. Worry about, is this person a true, true person of integrity? Is this person truly upright, righteous, deeply absorbed in God? Once a person is that, then that person, at least potentially, could be a prophet. But if the person isn't those things to begin with, then that person cannot be a prophet. And he puts the wonder working very much on a secondary step, because Jeremiah does, and because the Torah does. Rambam understood very, very well that prophecy is complicated in the Tanakh because they are predicting things, because they look into the future, because they do miracles. But the Torah keeps on turning back to what Jeremiah has been trying so hard to convince his audience, and that is that it's all about, are you getting people to improve? If you are, then at least you might be a prophet. If you're not, then you cannot be a prophet. Rav Shimshan Rafal Hirsch says it very well. He says that performing miracles and so-called soothsaying does not belong to the real calling of Jewish prophets. That's an amazing thing to say, given how many prophets do exactly those things. But he says, that's not what it's about. It's not about miracles or predicting. To be a prophet is to act as an intermediary, to give his people the insight into themselves and in his ways with them and with the nations of the world and to give them strength and courage and enduring faithfulness to God and the Torah. He's right. right. Rosh Hashanah just perfectly boils down this whole class and really what the whole Torah is trying to get at and, and all it's trying to say is don't be distracted by the predictions and the miracles. It's all about the prophetic integrity. Are you trying to improve the people? Now, the truth of the matter is Jeremiah failed once again. He, he didn't convince anybody to, to listen to him as opposed to the false prophets. I think what everybody was saying is correct. Namely, the political establishment wanted to revolt. The people wanted to revolt. 
false prophets wanted a, re- a revolt. Everybody wanted revolt. Nobody wanted Jeremiah's message of submission. It, he, he was not very popular, to put it mildly. But what he did in this battle against the false prophets for us is that he really clarified what makes prophets into prophets. You know, their greatness, their integrity, their commitment to God, Torah, the people, and trying to bring them closer to God. That's really what it's all about. Next week, we only have one more week in, the, in, this, in this cycle of eight. Next week, we're going to actually go through some of the great saga of Jeremiah and some of the great dramatic moments that he has with kings Jehoiakim and then with King Zidkiah. And we're going to take it from the year 605 to the year 586. And next week, just for the record, I'll send an email to remind everybody of this. We're starting at 715 because I think Minchan Arvid got moved forward because the clocks are changing. So all of a sudden, yeah, so... For, for the, for the next week and also for the May ones, it's all going to be 7.15 to 8.15. I look, I look forward to seeing you then. Yes, yeah, sorry, Abe. So, Yerbiyahu never did any, uh, any wonders or anything to show that he was in Abbey? He doesn't use predictions, uh, certainly no, no miracles. I'm looking at the two sources in the Torah. The first one is, uh, uh, he, gives, he gives an autumn and the second source in Devarim, he predicts something that happens. Right. So Yirmiyahu is a is a prophet, but he doesn't give any sign that he is I'll say like this, there are a couple of cases, including Adele pointed it out before correctly. When he says that Hananiah will die and he dies, one could have taken that to be a sign that the you know, like a, it's a down payment. You see that that's, that's right. On in his, uh, yeah, so he does down payment signs a couple of times like that one, but his main message it rides on repentance and then submission. It's not about doing miracles and things. He really just walks around with household objects and tries to encourage the people to repent or to submit based on them. Yeah, he he, does, he never turns to miracles to, to to prove his cause. Yeah, I don't. Do you think that this this structure is really um, like a crapshoot? It's a gamble. Um, Take Rabbi Akiva and Bar Kokhba, for example. Um, and here is an example of somebody who was very learned and could pick out the right things and, and knew about all about false prophecy, but yet he said Bar Kokhba was the Messiah. Right. The, so, the key difference, the key difference to Rabbi Akiva's credit, he was dead wrong, unfortunately, right? I wish he were right. He was dead wrong, but he didn't claim prophecy. In other words, he was using his judgment which is a different bird. In other words, look, in a world without prophecy, we all have to use our judgment, and all politicians have to use judgment also, right? In other words, governments use judgment. That's what we have to do, and that's fallible. You know, the Talmud... Is that the same judgment to determine whether the prophet's false or not? Well, there, Jeremiah is saying that the objective criterion for ascertaining at least who's a false prophet, anybody who's not trying to bring people closer to God and Torah must be a false prophet. That doesn't mean that somebody who's preaching God is a true prophet. But it means that you don't get off the ground without that. So Rambam basically says that. He says, if somebody's already preaching God and Torah, they should listen to that anyway, because it's a good message. The heart of the message is the right one. As opposed to Rabbi Akiva, right, he was just using his own judgment as a human being, and unfortunately he, uh, he was not correct. Okay, on that happy note, I look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you.